0: Well, we've been in this series that we just started called Tough Questions, and if you uh, missed last week or want to look ahead, that's on the front of your bulletin as to far as what's, what's coming, and you can always catch stuff online uh, if you would like to do that or share that with friends. But we take these tough question ideas from you, about, we took them about six months ago and began praying through and working through which ones we would want to cover, and today's tough question is a doozy. It's a big one, and it applies to 100%, not 50% of the world population. Today's tough question is, what does God say about women? And that's a question that's been batted around an awful lot. And I'm really thankful that here tag teaming with me today is my good friends, Haley Wood and Ron and Haley. They never do that for me. Um, (laughs) Ron and Haley have been members of Highland Park for a long time and they're two boys. And Haley has served, I was thinking, in about a gazillion different areas of volunteering and serving and leading and teaching in different areas and just has a heart to serve. And uh, one of the things that I I love most about Haley is her heart to study the Bible. She's a student of the Bible. And uh, when I knew that we were going to do this sermon, uh, I I called her up and said, hey, what do you think about uh, tag teaming with me on this sermon? So we've been kicking this around for a long time and looking to see what scripture says. And so she's going to kick us off. So go ahead, Haley. Thank you. Good to have you.
1: Well, up until a few years ago, I worked in the oil industry, and being one of only a few women out in the field, um, I had a few unspoken rules for myself, one being I needed to keep those girly emotions turned off. Well, that worked really well for me for about seven years until just a couple of days before I delivered our first son. While going to the restroom that day at work, I encountered a little problem. So the water would not stop filling the toilet after I flushed, which wouldn't be that big of a deal, right? Because you can just turn the valve off? Yeah, well, in this tiny little co-ed bathroom, which, by the way, I was the one who made it co-ed, there was this giant urinal tucked right next to a stall wall, tucked right next to the toilet and the valve was right on the floor underneath the stall wall. Well, imagine me with my big belly trying to somehow get between either the urinal and the toilet to try to get to that valve. I mean, you can't suck that baby in. I don't know if you know that or not. <laughs> so, next thing you know, the water's flowing out of the toilet into the floorway, uh, into the floor and out the doorway. No joke. So, in all of my devastation, I swish through the toilet water, and I open the bathroom door into the hallway, and there I find myself eye to eye with one of my long-term male co-workers. So in all of my calm, I informed him, the toilet is overflowing. And he looks at me, and do you know what that man said to me? Well, why didn't you just shut off the valve? No joke! (laughs) And so in all of my calm, I responded with, complete tears. I am bawling right in front of him. And so like the gentleman that he was, rather than saying anything else, he walked into the bathroom, shut off the valve, and then kindly helped me clean up the mess. So, you know, for us women, we find ourselves in precarious situations. And for you guys, it kind of pulls you into it sometimes, doesn't it? You know, being a woman can be exhilarating yet hard. It can be incredibly amazing, yet at the same time, our presence can be controversial. You know, societies and cultures, they vary and waver on their perspective and view of women, and sometimes those perspectives can be pretty extreme, you know, you have this extreme camp over here that's the oppressive camp. It's the camp where they find women subpar, and they treat them even blatantly or subtly. They, they just mistreat them. And then on the other camp, it's the group of people that have fought so intently to give freedom to and empower women that there's actually a tendency to live in fear of going back to the other camp, right? Right? And so what happens in that camp is sometimes we'll try to fight, rather than fighting for equality, we'll have a tendency to fight for favor or power out of fear. Now, I have an understanding of both camps because I've lived in both camps. Over here, I was the one that was oppressed. At 12 years old, I was groomed by an older man that eventually led to emotional and sexual abuse. And then by the time I was 15, I finally got out of that relationship, but I had worked my way over to this camp as mentally I said to myself, nobody will ever treat me like that again. And so out of fear, I wanted to control anything and everything around me. Now, neither camp has to be this extreme in order for it to be hurtful and degrading, right? But the purpose of this sermon is not to put women in their place, nor is it to make men feel devalued. The purpose is for us to take a pause from, all of, from listening to all of the varied views of the world and instead soak in the perspective of our Creator.
0: The Bible is such an interesting book because it's full of history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if you read the Bible, you'll come to some troublesome passages about women because the Bible records many times where women were terribly mistreated. And we're not going to spend the whole sermon on all of those passages. We could. But I, I want you to hear me say something really clearly. Just because the Bible tells a story does not mean that God condones that story. See, it's a beautiful thing that the Bible just tells it like it is if the Bible was concocted by these people who were trying to pull the wool over everyone's eyes and just make up this and fabricate this document, they would not have included any of that ugly stuff, right? But God actually says, here's what happened. And then oftentimes God tells a story and then he does not condone, but condemns the people who carried out the mistreatment of people. So ladies, I want you to hear me say that. And, and the Bible has something to say for all women, whether you come today single or married or no children or lots of children, or maybe you're single and wishing you had a boyfriend, and maybe you're a, you have a boyfriend but you're wishing you were single, however you're here today, I don't know. <laughs> but the Bible has something for you. And one of the truths that we want you to walk away with today is this. If you see God's character, you'll never view yourself as too important or too unworthy. Whether you're a a man or a woman, that statement is true. So we're going to try to do three things today in this sermon. We're going to look at what does God say to women and about women, and we're going to do that in three different ways. The first is we're going to look at God's creation, and there's a a full list on your sermon page. If you like to take notes, there's a lot of stuff there for you. So when God created the world... That's a really important story to tell, and so God's creation. The second thing that we're gonna do is talk about uh, what does God say about women in regard to his call for women and how they serve, uh, especially serve within the local church, and we're gonna tackle a pretty difficult passage as we go through that, but we wanna do that together, and then the last thing we're gonna do is what is God's perspective, and what actions does he take when, when, when women are mistreated? And so that's going to be, again, for women and for men to hear. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and just flip it open to page 1, Genesis chapter 1.
1: So the first mention of women in the Bible occurs in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. This happens to be day 6 of creation, and it says this. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Created them. The word created is used three times in this one short verse, which is significant because the number three in the Bible represents divine or complete. And you know, the third use of the word created doesn't come about until God says He created both genders. If you back up one verse to verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image and likeness. So he didn't actually just make us in his image. He made us in the image of the Trinity. So think about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three separate entities, yet they are one. So God alone is powerful and creative. Jesus alone is compassionate and life-giving, and the Holy Spirit alone is just incredible, right? But yet, Even though they are separate, they are not complete apart from one another. So, in verse 27, we get to see man and woman as two singular entities right at the onset of creation, given value by God. And this value is devoid of any circumstances circumstances such as marital status, financial status, our success, our failures. And if we start our study of women in Genesis chapter two, when it speaks of Eve in relationship to Adam, then we may actually convince ourselves that the value of a woman actually comes in when she appeases her husband's loneliness. But that is not true. Our value solely lies in the fact that we are his image bearers. Both genders are necessary in order for God's image to be visible. Understanding what Genesis 1 says about women provides us a wonderful framework for two often controversial terms in the Bible in regards to wives. Those terms, helper and submissive. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, if you don't mind, turn turn there. It begins detailing the physical creation of the first woman and her role as wife. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now that term helper is one that we often use today to talk about somebody with less experience or maybe they're not as equipped. We think about a child helping a parent. The Old Testament never uses the term in that fashion. More than 75% of the time when this term is used in the Old Testament, it is in regards to the one in which we bear his image. It is referring to God as helper. And it is used, and it is him helping in a way that the one being helped could never fulfill on their own accord. In fact, even very strong, valiant, and wise men such as David Samuel, and King David, they were professing their need for God's help in this way. Eve wasn't just a helper. She was a suitable helper. While God's ability as helper expand to all who call upon his name, it is in this word suitable that her role of helper does not extend to all men in all creation, but only to the man in which she is united to as husband. When the New Testament speaks of husbands and wives, it continues to use terminologies that are associated with the Trinity. Lots of different passages. You have 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 3. Multiple times we hear that wives are called to submit to their husbands as the head. But also throughout the New Testament, the terms head and submission are also applied to God and his relationship with Jesus and Jesus and his relationship with the church. Submission is a continual attitude or a pattern of behavior in respect to the head. So Jesus and his role to God continually submitted. And here's the challenging part. He submitted to the point of death on a cross. But just as we take no offense or see Christ as lesser for submitting to God, we should not take offense to or find women lesser than men in any way because of this command. Guess what? In Jesus' role as head of the church, what did he do? He loved the church so much that he gave his life for her. Husbands are called to exercise their headship in this same way. Way. They are called to exercise their headship with love, grace, and submission to God, just as Jesus did. So, whether in the role of husband or wife in God's plan, both would be willing to give their life for the other. Helper, submission, head, these are all big assignments, you guys, that are attributed to us only as image bearers of God, and they are assignments that cannot be truly fulfilled apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. They are roles given to promote supernatural unity between a husband and a wife, just like there is unity between God and Jesus, and just like there is unity between Jesus and the church. Now we want to move into 1 Timothy chapter 2.
0: A question that can be tragically divisive is this, what is God's call for women and where and how they can serve? And there are at least three surefire ways to develop an unbiblical and destructive view in case anybody was wanting to do that this afternoon. Let me share them with you. Really, I want to, we want to talk about these three things that we can do that can really get us in trouble when we read any one passage I want to I point these out as we go through 1 Timothy 2 so that we won't make that mistake uh, with this passage or with any passage. The first way that we can really get in trouble is this. We can read selected verses without reading the whole Bible. Now, I'm not saying that tomorrow morning when you wake up, you have to read the whole Bible or none of it. You know, we, we can't read it all every day. What I am saying is, We have to be really careful about reading one verse and then trying to make the rest of the Bible fit underneath that one verse, as opposed to when we get to a difficult verse to interpret, we take that one verse and we make sure it aligns with the rest of Scripture. We want to read it that way. Secondly, we want to read selected, or we can get in trouble if we read selected verses without understanding the context so the context of, a, of any biblical passage would also be you know, the chapters before and after, but it could also be um, what's happening culturally and historically around. See, the Bible is timeless. It is true all throughout time, but it's also timely because the Bible was written in real time. God inspired Paul to write this letter of First Timothy to a real person, Timothy, at a real church in Ephesus. With real people, real city, real jobs, it was a real thing. So while the Bible is timeless, it was also written in real time. And so one of the things that any good Bible student has to always be doing is thinking about what's the context here, because the context helps me understand how to interpret the scripture. And I know that some of us don't like that. We're like, well, I don't, I don't interpret the scripture. I just read it, what, read it and do what it says. I wish it was that easy, but it's not. Let me give you an example. I think we all agree the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? As I was mowing yesterday, I noticed, at least I think what I noticed down the street was I think some of our neighbors had a baby. They, they're carrying a car seat inside, and so I'm not for sure, but it seems like that's maybe what happened. And so if I wanted to interpret that verse, love your neighbor, and apply it in my setting in 2019 over on 41st and Mingo, then I could maybe buy a box of diapers and take it to them tomorrow, okay? But if you buy some diapers and take them to your neighbors, they might be really confused or even offended today, right? So we're all looking at Scripture and applying it. And so sometimes when we read the Bible, we're looking, okay, am I reading right now a principle that carries throughout time? Or right now, am I reading this big principle that that is timeless But in this moment in Scripture, God is applying it to a specific thing that Timothy was dealing with, because that specific thing might not be the same way that God wants me to apply that principle. Do you follow? So we have to do a little bit of work to interpret Scripture. We all interpret it. It's just a matter of whether we do it well or not. We can't just say, I read it and do what it says. We want to always do what the Bible says, but it takes a little bit of interpretive work, especially with some difficult passages. And the, the third way we can get in trouble is we try to force the Bible to defend our assumptions, preferences and traditions. We don't want to lay those things on top of the Bible. We want to lay the Bible on top of everything else and let it form our thoughts and what we think about things. So With that said, we want to just do a little bit of a case study here in 1 Timothy 2 with a passage that's been troublesome for lots of us, including me, of trying to figure out what is going on here. And so I want to begin reading in verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, But with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. What is going on there? And uh, that's been a question that's been asked uh, for many years in many different places. And we understand why. We read that. we're, We're all thinking, okay, what is going on here? And in some places, what churches have decided is that women cannot have any role of speaking or teaching or saying anything at all in church ever. And then there's been different variations of that. And I want to talk about the problem with that view, because if we take 1 Timothy 2 and try to line it up under the rest of Scripture— we have to realize something else might be going on here. Because let's just look at that first thing. We get in trouble when we read one little passage without thinking about all of scripture. So let's think about all of scripture. Specifically, what does all of scripture say about women? What are some of the things that women have done in the Bible? Let's read, or look, i made a big list for you. Miriam and the ladies in the choir helped lead worship. Deborah served as judge and prophetess leading a nation. Miriam, Huldah, Isaiah's wife, Anna, Philip's four daughters and the women in the Corinthian church prophesied. That typically means to preach or to teach, to proclaim God's truth. Mary and Mary Magdalene were the bearers of the resurrection Mary, uh, message to the apostles. Phoebe was called a deaconess. Romans 16, 7 refers to Junia as an apostle or a missionary or one sent out. Priscilla, along with her husband Aquila, taught and mentored Apollos. Uh, and her name is always listed first, kind of like she took the lead in that teaching. And Paul says that Yoda and Sinke contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So if we take 1 Timothy 2 and say God doesn't let women speak anywhere in the church gathering, what in the world do we do with all of this? What you would have to do is try to ignore it or shove it to the side. But that's not what a good Bible student does. The Bible student has to think, okay, I see what God is doing in this overarching plan in Scripture. So maybe there's something else going on in 1 Timothy 2 besides a very legalistic view of women can't speak in church at all. That word quiet shows up twice in the verses I read, and it's an interesting word because it's not the first time Paul's used it. Paul actually uses that word just a few paragraphs earlier, but in a way that will maybe give you a better understanding about what he means. He also uses it in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, And he says this. Don't be gossips or disruptive, but pray you can live a quiet and peaceful life. Hmm. Different. It's the exact same word. So in other words, that word quiet, we need to think about, was that the best translation they could have given us there? Maybe not um, there, because quiet seems in this setting be peaceful, not argumentative, not gossiping. So how do we take all of this and figure out how do, we, how do we apply it to exactly what all is going on? We see the Bible, and then we see, okay, I still don't maybe quite get it. That's where we look to history and context a little bit. And this is where, again, it takes a little bit of work. But the context of the day, women were mistreated, as they still are, around the world to different degrees and different places. I've been places where women were treated terribly, been places where they were treated much better. But that was certainly the context of the day, that women were mistreated. And so God is a good missionary. And when he enters into a scene, he doesn't always change everything about the culture at once. Our missionary friends who were here just a couple weeks ago uh, have told me, you know, when they often, because of the country where they are in, when they go to eat with friends, oftentimes... In fact, always, the men are completely separated from the women when they eat. They have to be in different rooms. They can't be around each other. Now, our missionary friends don't really love that because they like each other. They like to be around each other. However, their first job as missionaries is not to change the eating customs of their country. Their first job is to let people know that Jesus loves them, and that's going to begin to change everything about their culture once they begin to believe that. Does that make sense? So sometimes God enters uh, the culture, and it's not that he doesn't care about mistreatment. It's just he may approach it and slowly change. And, and so when Paul is even writing these words, I think we have to be careful to think that he's saying this is how it should always be um, and think what is happening here and what is kind of all of Scripture saying about this. There's also something happening culturally that is, that is really important. In Ephesus... Where Timothy lived, and maybe not restricted to there, there was a movement of women who were vying not for equality but for superiority, and some of them were getting it. And a lot of it was tied to the temple worship there of Diane, and um, that, that temple worship was dripping with sexual immorality and kind of a power play by women, and it was a cultish, evil um, dogma that came out of that. And so imagine what would happen When some of the women who were part of that ultra movement begin to hear about Jesus and they show up at a church service or a Bible study and instead of listening, they begin saying like, well, what about this idea? Because this is what I think and I still think everything is pretty much men's fault because Adam's the one who sinned and, and what about this idea and what about this practice and what about this goddess and completely disrupting the church service? What would Paul say If that was the issue, which it was. Paul would say, ladies, be quiet. You need to learn before you begin speaking. If you have all these disruptive questions, those would be better off at home, okay? Understand that we're trying to teach the Bible here, and you need to take this role of submissiveness. And by the way, it wasn't all, it wasn't only Adam's fault. Eve didn't look so great in that story either, Right? And so Paul comes here and says that now that we understand kind of the full scope of the Bible and we understand that bit of history, does that help you get through 1 Timothy 2 just a little bit better? It doesn't make it all perfect. There's there's scriptures in the Bible that I'm convinced, you know, I'll breathe my last breath and I'm still kind of wrestling with them. And, And that's okay. As an eldership, we spent a year working through this very subject and topic because we want to get it as close to right as we can, understanding that God has grace, you know, with us and with other churches who may not have the same view that we have, but, but we want to get it as right as we can because it matters to women and it matters to men and it matters to the church. I, I've had some people say, um, you, you, you really, no church should start empowering women more. Because if you do that, you're going to end up just kind of erasing any gender differences and all of that. And Highland Park believes that God created male and female. And it's a wonderful thing. We need each other. And we love that. And we, we practice that and teach that. And, and so people have said, yeah, but if, you, if you empower women in this way and begin teaching this, then that means you're just going to do away with all the gender differences and just kind of go where culture is going. And I think that's lazy. You should never... Teach one unbiblical idea to guard from the slippery slope of teaching another unbiblical idea. Just teach the biblical ideas, right? So that's what we're gonna do, even when it feels a little difficult. And there's some scriptures that may leave us scratching our head, but we're gonna keep praying together and studying together and learning together because it matters to women and it matters to men and it matters to the church. So with that said, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 7.
1: I'm really glad that Brian came to the conclusion in that last segment that women could talk. (laughs) 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 We'd be in trouble right now. Luke chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 37. This is just an incredible story. I love this story. So the common practice was for the door of the dining room to be left open so that the uninvited could actually come in and out throughout the festivities. And they could even sit along the walls and listen in on the conversations between the host and the guest. So while the uninvited were actually invited, clearly this woman, who was probably a prostitute, um, was not really a welcome participant, was she? Jesus answered Simon's thoughts and questions by telling him a parable with the idea that those who have been forgiven much love more. And then around verse 44, Jesus actually turns toward the woman and and he gets Simon's attention toward the woman. And then he mentions to Simon three customary greetings that for whatever reason, Simon did not give to Jesus that day when he entered his house. But do you know who did? The woman did all three customary greetings, and she did them in extravagant fashion. Jesus ends in verse 50 by speaking directly to the woman, saying, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So it's clear to me that Jesus was much more pleased with the woman, right, the sinful woman, than he was with Simon, the religious Pharisee. So what are some key takeaways from this scripture for us? Let's start with the woman. Okay, the woman was an outcast. She didn't fit in and people did not see her as worthy to participate. Yet she is awe-inspiring. So let's discuss how we can mimic her if we find ourselves in a similar circumstance. So first, her first action was really simple enough. She showed up. But how hard is it to show up when you know they have a negative perception of you. And I'm not talking about showing up to a physical place. I'm talking, and I'm not talking about returning to abuse over and over. Showing up is showing up physically, emotionally, and spiritually to the place you know you're supposed to be. It is having a God-given confidence that you have the value spoken of in Genesis 1 rather than cowering to the lies of others. It is imperative that we show up even if we have failed in every possible way. It is imperative that we show up even if it feels like we are going to be standing alone because truthfully, we will not be standing alone. Just like this woman, Jesus is walking into every physical and spiritual battle with us. And not only is he walking with us, he is going before us. Especially as the church, it is imperative that we continue to show up to do the things we know we are called to do, even when the world questions our validity. The second thing the woman did is act with godly humility. Did you notice she didn't speak a single word? Yet the account speaks loudly. Even when strong words are necessary, may we choose to act in complete humility. Third, her focus was consumed by Christ alone. I am convinced that if the entire world exploded around this woman, that she would not have noticed because she spent all of her energy worshiping the one that had the power to save her and the one who had seen her as a child of God. This type of devotion doesn't keep us from very difficult circumstances, but it certainly changes our perception, doesn't it? Let your focus be consumed by Christ alone. Let's transition over to Jesus, who, like many of us, was observing someone who was either subtly or not so subtly being mistreated. Jesus obviously did something for this woman that we can't. He gave her eternal life, but he did do several other very practical things. So Jesus could have stopped her at the door and given her the whole you've been forgiven speech, which could have saved her from a lot of humiliation, but sometimes there is healing in the process. It is tempting to short circuit someone else's healing because, frankly, it can be inconvenient for us. I mean, think about it. Jesus actually showed up that day to have dinner with some friends when this woman started in on this whole thing. I consider when I ripped off the band-aids and exposed the wounds of my past abuse by going to celebrate recovery, it required hours of my husband listening, Holding me, giving me space, it, <laughs> he forgave me over and over as I promise not to treat him as the enemy, but I failed day after day. It wasn't convenient, but he facilitated my healing rather than hindering it, and I am a much healthier, vibrant wife today because of it. Do not hinder the healing process of those who have been hurt or demeaned by others. Second, Jesus used his influence to this woman's benefit and to lovingly confront wrongful thinking and attitudes. Jesus had a platform at Simon's table, and so he used it. And he used it wisely. We, too, should consider our influence and use it in the same manner. For example, if you were to hear inappropriate locker room banter consider saying, I can't be a part of this. Because if you are not against it, then you're for it. Consider your daughter. Whether to her face or behind her back, treat and speak about every woman with the same physical and intellectual dignity that you would like others to do for your daughter. Last, the woman was standing behind Jesus during the entire event. Did you guys catch that? She was actually behind him when she was doing all of these things for him. But then verse 44, go to verse 44. I want you to look at it because if you soak anything in today, this is is what I want you to soak in. Jesus does something incredible. He turns and he looks at this woman, but he's still speaking to Simon. And he asks Simon this do you see this woman? This is not a question of pity. This is not a question of condemnation. He wanted Simon to see her, and looking is not the same as seeing. To be seen is to be known, dignified, and valued. What an incredible gift to be seen. Jesus acknowledged her value and worth, and his perspective of me and every woman today is no different he sees me as he created me to be not as sum of my sinfulness or of my successes jesus's love and perspective of every single person never wavers do you see this woman jesus did who is it that you need to see today church there are so many people inside and outside of the body of Christ that have been wounded by others. And even at times, they have been wounded by some of us in the church, right? And sometimes people have been wounded by a misuse of the Bible. If we are the ones who have been wounded, let's commit to showing up with humility with our focus 100% on Christ. When others are being wounded, let's choose to see them and take action rather than pretending like it doesn't exist, God has given the power of the Holy Spirit to the church and each individual within it so that we can see and love extravagantly all who have been created in his image. I'm going to ask you to please stand up. If you can, if you are not comfortable standing up or can't stand up, please stay seated. But while you're standing, I want you to close your eyes. I hope you've been compelled in some way today. In whatever way you're compelled, let's take it to the Lord in prayer. We're going to have people up front and on the sides that are ready to pray with you. Or if you want to kneel at your seat, or even come kneel here on these steps in front of the cross, I simply want To give you the freedom to pour your heart before our Lord and creator the one in which you bear his image father in heaven you are holy and mighty you are loving you have sacrificed everything and we come before you as a body of believers asking you to heal our perspective our perspective of how we see ourselves and how we see others as valuable Image bearers. If you're someone that has experienced the pain and the suffering at the hands of someone else and you would like prayer, I want to ask you to come forward. Or if you're more comfortable just raising your hand, we can pray for you from where we stand. Dear God, I pray for those who have been lied to about who they are and whose they are. For every person that has been physically, emotionally, and sexually abused, God, may today be a day of healing and restoration for their souls. For those who have been overlooked, undervalued, and mistreated, may they know they are seen, and anything less than valuable is an unacceptable description of who they are. Father, some of us have been hurt in this way, have actually tried to numb or control the pain in ways that are sinful and have separated us from you. We confess these sins to you today, Lord, believing that you are faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. I pray, God, that their relationship with you will be redeemed and any other relationships that have been hindered by this suffering can be healed. Father, we believe you. We believe what you created us to be, your image bearer. Are you realizing today that your attitudes, words, or actions have actually hurt somebody else in this way? We want to pray for you. We want to pray with you. I ask you to either come up front or just start by raising your hand and we'll pray for you from where we stand. Father, you tell us that if we confess our sins to each other and pray for each other, that we will be healed. And we absolutely believe that that is possible, Father. May this healing and change begin today. May it begin right here in your church. Help us to understand the ways that we are wrong and the ways we have wronged others and create in us a pure heart, oh God, that we may love and see others in a way that is honoring to you. Father, we give ourselves to you today.
0: Lord, help us to see Deborah under that tree judging and prophesying. Help us to see Ruth showing what love and sacrifice and courage really looks like. Help us to see Esther taking a stand in front of the king, saving her people. Help us to see Mary entrusted with the greatest news of all time, Jesus is alive. Help us to see our mothers and grandmothers, our sisters, our daughters, and to treat them as family, Help us to see the women who who feel worthless today so that she can see the adoring face of Christ. Help us to see those fighting for superiority so that we can pray for them and care for them that they might rest in your arms. Help us to see the ladies here at Highland Park. We want them to feel valued and loved and cared for Lord, we want to see them use the gifts that you've given to them to spread your gospel around this city and around the world. And whether folks here are male or female, Lord, help us to know that you see us. You see us. You are with us. And God, help us to see you. In Jesus' name, amen.